Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Ed Surge on Air podcast. My name is Jenny Abamu, and I'm your co-host. So today we're talking about something that's not exactly techie, but definitely is a new learning trend that's gaining traction. Our guest, Dr. Edward Fergus from Temple University, has been researching how social-emotional learning practices affect or don't affect school discipline. Now, this is important because the United States Government Accountability Office recently released a report that found, among other things, I want to throw some facts and figures at you, that black students, black male students, who account for 15.5% of all public school kids, represent about 39% of students who are suspended from school, an overrepresentation of 23 percentage points. Now, for those of you who are not into the numbers, basically, Black male students are a minority group in schools, but they're punished more than any other demographic group. This report found that students with disabilities were also disproportionately disciplined in their public schools. It's a troubling trend, but punishment for black male students can start as early as preschool and continue as they become adults in society, meaning punishments hurts them educationally as children and economically as adults. But can social-emotional learning practices change this? Some educators think so, but researchers who've already dived into this topic have the receipts. Welcome listeners and welcome Dr. Edward Fergus to our Ed Surge On Air podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to be on. Now, before we get started, I would love to gauge where you are. What has been your reaction to this report on school discipline? Did you read the time story on this? As an educator, as a black male, what emotions, ideas, or thoughts came to your mind after taking all this in? Well, uh, you know, I, I so appreciate the fact that, you know, we're at a date and age where there is a robust amount of data um, available to actually be able to tell the types of stories that I think for a long time have may have served. We, we have been relying on sort of a level of anecdotal information or snapshots of information, but now we have massive amounts or just metadata that really allows us to really sort of pinpoint with a higher degree of accuracy of the preponderance of what we have known have been part of the uh, the narrative of experiences for, for specific populations. And in this instance, you know, uh, looking at black boys and, and even I will even stretch it out to even include black black children in general, because black girls are also having um, um, a disproportionate uh, uh, impact in terms of sort of the discipline stuff. Secondly, I think there is a what this report points out, um, you know, um, out of this data that's being collected across many school districts is the preponderance to which, you know, discipline is being used as an intervention. Right. Um, so on one hand, you know, it's the struggle of understanding that discipline is not an intervention, right? It does not have the parameters of what we know and what we understand from from a great deal of behavior research in terms of how do we not only make sense of behaviors, but also how do we begin replacing behaviors? And, um, and, and, and so the utilization of discipline as an intervention, now we understand it's just constant, continuously being used across so many districts. At the same time, I also sort of recognizing that you know, we have, ed, you know, that educators are also not behavioralists, right? They're absent of sort of that, that level of capacity. So their reliance on sort of, uh, of this, or the, the, the architecture of discipline 
is predicated on the idea of removal or punishment. Um, uh, because that's their sort of their only place that sort of, of knowledge base that they can kind of work from. And um, so it also sort of helps us kind of swim in that terrain even more in understanding the, that it's not about sort of, it's not just about sort of like, let's remove discipline as an option in terms of an intervention, but rather what is, what should be the framework for, for intervention work around discipline, right? Because kids aren't going to have a range of behaviors, but it's also a matter as practitioners in school settings to have a great deal of things in our toolkit to kind of draw from, to know exactly how to respond to a kid who, um, who's demonstrating a particular behavior. You know, um, I'm always, I always think back to a set of research um, uh, around trauma-informed care work where uh, that they always talk about sort of reframing the question from away from um, what's wrong with you to a question of what's happened to you, right? As a, as a form, uh, as a place of reference, right? That, um, that practitioners can work from, and uh, so uh, so I'm I'm excited by the the fact that yet that we have more information, um, uh, but I'm also cautionary in terms of so what are we doing with this, right? So now that we you know uh, now that we know more, um, what are we are we going to do better uh, in terms of our uh, our work? Um, the other piece, I mean, in terms of the New York Times article, you know, in particular, because uh, this is the other thing, I'm just like love the fact that journalists are just like out there and really putting this stuff out there. Uh, this not only set of reports that generally will will live in sort of a very small pocket of people who who do this type of work. Um, so now you have these, you know, all of these media outlets who are asking the question around: Is everybody experiencing society in similar ways? And if not, what do what, what's going on in terms of why that's not occurring? Um, so the, the various New York Times articles, you know, like the one around. Um, you know, looking at the pathways of, of uh, boys and young men in terms of, of wealth, right? That over time, that boys who, uh, who begin with particular sort of wealth patterns, mm-hmm. that, uh, that they end up at different places, right? And, and for me, what, I, what it helps resonate for me uh, yet again is the notion that wealth is, an, is not enough of a protective factor for boys of color. And particularly black boys, right? Um, and if that's the case, right, it, it it adds to this dialogue that there are textured pieces around how people experience society that are based on race, ethnicity, and cultural differences that are being used as a discriminatory lens, right? Um, so we yet yet again we have to continue. You know, it, it provides an opportunity to kind of work even deeper into this set of work and understanding that it's not just about, you know, well, let's just give people money. I'm like, that ain't going to cure it all. <laughs> so. Wow. That is so much to unpack. I mean, <laughs> I'm like, just like thinking about teachers as behavioralists, thinking about um, black students and, and the pathway for wealth and not that not being protective. I mean, that's such a mind boggling kind of explosion of thoughts, you know, especially since the narrative that we've been taught is like this kind of almost a talented 10th thing that's gone through society and actually permeated the education system. 
Um, but before we go further off track, I want to dive into your re- research because we can go all kinds of directions here. And you, with your research, you worked with different school districts trying to implement social and emotional learning practices. And you and your co-researcher, Anne Gregory, came to two primary conclusions about the limitations of social and emotional learning practices. Tell the audience about what those conclusions were and what were some of the things that led you there? Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, so this, this work that, um, that I've been fortunate enough to, um, to think long and hard with Anne Gregory has been amazing. I mean, Anne is such a, uh, such a uh, brilliant scholar around this work, um, but it was, it was great to work with her on this project. Um, uh, it, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, you, you, you sit with a scholar and you really vibe, and we've been talking about this for years, and we had an opportunity to really write um, uh, sort of very cogently about it. But our, you know, uh, what Anne and I sort of really uh, argue here is this idea that social emotional learning, um, similar to other um, sort of frameworks that are existing within our educational space, that we have to consider where does it fit within the conversations on, you know, how we are fixing um, and addressing issues like discipline. Um, And um, uh, so as much as we consider that social emotional learning is such a um, it's a tool for, um, for, or a framework for, for approaching sort of how we create the types of climate and culture that kids need for them to be successful. There has to be a great deal of intentionality. Um, so as we sort of engage this, this notion of social emotional learning, we tackle the idea, well, well, what does it mean for, you know, one, what do we understand are the set of competencies that are bound to social emotional learning as they fit alongside, um, uh, different racial, ethnic, linguistic, um, and cultural groups that are existing within our, our, our school system, right? So, uh, so as we, so for example, when we think about um, one of the concepts around uh, social emotional learning competencies is uh, problem solving. Um, so if we think about sort of the notion of what, how we're trying to build that competency of problem solving, you know, how do we treat, um, you know, uh, the types of ways in which kids are breaking their own personalized experiences into how they make sense of problem solving, right? So I always remember an example that a colleague sort of talked about a conference, it's like a decade ago, but it always sat with me, which is the idea of, you know, um, so what kind of problem solving skills do you think goes into when a kid, let's say, um, is um, is in a store and they see a wallet sitting on the floor that must have fell and um, out of somebody's pocket or so forth? You know, what are the types of, uh, of sort of knowledge base and experiences that, let's say, a black boy is bringing into seeing that wallet on the floor, right, versus a white boy who may be bringing into that dialogue, right, into how they're making sense of, do I pick it up and turn it in? Do I pick it up and, um, uh, and do I think about sort of how others are going to read me picking up a wallet? That is not mine, right? Or uh, or money sticking or money sitting on the floor, right? So, um, and I was, you know, so what stood out for me is sort of the the sense making that an individual is going to put into this, right? So, um, in in that particular example, and you know, and I've thought about it in terms of my own kids, right? I have a fourteen and eighteen year old, and you know, one of the things I'm very conscious of letting them know is that the world is constantly reading you in ways that may not that is not going to fit the same way that I read you. I read you as my kids, so I see such I see the good heartedness that you all bring to this table all the time. 
but that's not necessarily how uh, the rest of the world is going to necessarily interact with you or see you. So in an instant like you seeing a wallet on the floor, the good Samaritan side of you, that good humanity of, you know, I want to pick it up and I want to turn it into lost and found. Or I want to, um, you know, I'm also sort of helping my kids under my own kids understand that uh, I want you to be mindful of how you actually engage in that, because there may be a way in which the rest of the world is seeing you, you pick up that wallet in a very different manner than where you may have been intending to kind of sort of engage in that particular context, right? So that's some of the thinking that's going to go into how kids are operationalizing this idea of problem solving, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're going to bring in different sets of lenses into that. Um, So social emotional learning um, and the, you know, the next sort of bandwidth of growth that, you know, uh, that Anne and I are, you know, arguing is that there has to be a greater intentional conversation as to how does this, how do these competencies get layered into along or alongside some of the racial, ethnic and cultural difference realities that are also uh, existing across different populations, um, especially when we are trying to imagine this being SEL being one of the uh, components that we see as um, addressing some of the um, discipline disparity issues that are existing in our schools that we know are also bound to how practitioners are reading kids' behaviors, mm-hmm. um, right? So the, the um, I, was, I remember a colleague, uh, Russell Skiba, sharing a story, a narrative about um, uh, an experience that he had where working with a school district where um, he, uh, there was a disproportionate pattern of, uh, around disrespect, right? So they kept using disrespect, but there was differences in terms of uh, black and white kids, right? Um, a rate at which they were being identified for disrespectful behavior. And, um, and he asked a question to the practitioners in this particular school district, right? Are there differences in disrespect of how white kids show it than black kids? And um, and he shared how the practitioners were acting out the differences where, you know, white kids were may have been doodling or looking off, right? Where, but the black kids, the examples that they gave were kids rolling their eyes, sucking their teeth, you know, rolling their neck, right? Um, and he asked a very pointed question, which is, well, which one of these behaviors are the ones that you find as the disrespect that rises to a level that you need to refer a kid for, right? And they, they tended to identify the rolling of the eyes, the rolling of the neck, sucking the teeth, right? So there was a, a, an element sort of, 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 in some ways, of, uh, of, of behavior among black kids that is still disrespectful, just as like the white kids, but, um, but with being identified by practitioners as something that they found as, uh, as problematic to them, right? Mm-hmm. So our, our work around the SEL as part of culture and climate work um, has to continue to grow at a level where we're attentive to these set of nuances. Um, and what I appreciate that Anne and I were trying to do with this piece is to argue, you know, where are the areas of, of that matter in terms of doing this? So it's a, in how we unpack some of these set of competencies. Um, and, uh, and then secondly, how they intersect, um, with a, uh, with a, uh, an understanding of, of equity issues um, that include understanding uh, concepts of of race, ethnicity, linguistic, and cultural differences, and as well as understanding nature of power and privilege and how they permeate the manner in which we kind of understand and respond to behavior. 
Talk a little bit about that kind of power uh, side, because you, you talked a little bit about the kind of perceptions, but a li- there, you were talking about, in the paper, I remember there being a part where you guys were saying kind of things about the teacher's SEL and not focus, focusing so much on the student as opposed to what's going on with the teacher. Talk about that angle. Right. I mean, it, what's key around SEL is, the, you know, I, I'm, what I'm so excited is the fact that we have an opportunity to actually have this SEL dialogue in school settings. That's great. Now, the, the, the struggle is that it's predominantly about kids, right? It's like, how do we build SEL in kids? Well, there, there has to be a level of, there's a presumption that lies within that SEL work with kids is that the adults who are invoking it, who are trying to build it in kids, have it themselves, right? So it, it's the, um, it, it's, uh, it reminds me of sort of in trauma-informed care, talking about sort of hurt people working with hurt kids, right? We have to sort of be mindful of how we're also building that competency in those set of adults as well, right? So what's the degree to which um, of SEL competencies that actually live within the set of adults who are working with a diverse set of population to help build their SEL skills? You analyze policy and guidance on school discipline in schools, and rumors are swirling that Education Education Secretary Betsy DeVos might want to roll some of those Obama-era guidance issues back. What did you find in your analysis of the policy, and what would be your response to DeVos's plans to possi- possibly roll those initiatives back? Well, you know, I'll be honest. For me, the broader context, you know, I'm a, I'm a history person. I'm a former social studies teacher, so for me, it's like everything's historical. You know, I'm like, where have, I, where have we seen this before? You know, the, the reality is that in, in the, what I call sort of the big umbrella of all this work around equity is really civil rights. Um, and the manner in which this, our society has been able to function to be successful um, has been as a result of um, federal level um, uh, oversight or involvement in ensuring um, what we have identified as core civil rights um, that every individual should be uh, privy to. And um, so the role that the federal government has played in that has, is paramount. Um, and because it hasn't been, it hasn't always been by, you know, so, uh, where state governments are, you know, in their goodwill are going to want to do the right thing, right. Are going to want to ensure that everybody has, um, ensures that everybody has opportunity. So the federal government has always been an important sort of, um, avenue for ensuring civil rights. Um, so when we're talking about the guidance package that was, um, you know, that was signed off by Arnie Duncan and um, Eric Holder, it was, it was paramount in acknowledging that there is a disproportionate pattern of suspension and discipline occurring across the country, right? And, but this guidance document, again, is providing school districts ways in which that they should look much more closely at their data, uh, pay much more closer attention to the nature of their policy, right? And what we had actually occur during since that time frame is that you see you've seen a great deal of policy movement, right? So, at, there's a uh, there's a great deal of state education um, agencies and as well as state government that have moved in the direction of actually p- enacting new policy changes, right? So we have in so for example in Maryland, uh, Maryland has a new uh, state legislature law that um, that requires that that the state education department cite school districts that are disproportionately uh, suspending kids of color, right? Um, and it ha- and it's, it, it, and I highlight it because it's unique in the sense that it's most of that is most 
uh, states, they've done it at a level where it's a school district gets cited, but Maryland has gone even further and said, no, you a school itself could be cited within a school district, right? So, so we have places like Maryland that passed that uh, those types of provisions. You have places like Illinois, uh, Colorado, uh, uh, California that have moved in the direction of removing um, suspension as an option for kids in grades K to two, kindergarten to grade two. Um, and the premise of sort of why they've moved is, and I appreciate this, they said, they predominantly said two things. One is the premise is that their discipline should have a rehabilitative approach to it, right? Um, and two, it should be developmentally appropriate, right? So now, and, the, and that's in response to the fact that you have kindergartners, kindergartners getting suspended because they kicked the teacher in the shin, okay? And, and I get that it, it's, it is hurtful in that moment in terms of the behavior that that kid is demonstrating, right? But that, um, that punishment approach, absent of any type of rehabilitative approach, is not developmentally appropriate for our kids, particularly in that age bracket. So, so you've had a lot of states that have moved in that direction, which I think is, is an important step, right? Um, two, uh, many of these states have also moved in the direction of insisting that there be particular types of intervention approaches that are much more rehabilitative and that they have a developmental uh, uh, and behavioralist perspective bound to them. So, so what we're seeing is state education departments um, now moving much more uh, directly around instituting um, uh, or requiring the school district outline their SDL types of curriculum that they're going to be building in place, right? So, so this policy piece, as a result of that guidance, has been phenomenal. Now, what uh, the current Secretary of Ed is approaching in terms of, you know, from um, uh, from what I what I've read, um, not only in terms of this particular guidance, but also in terms of disproportionality in special education, which is my other area of focus. Is that she the the language that she's using is very similar, which is the idea of uh, we need to delay this type of overregulation, right? This level of, of of encroachment of the federal government into the roles of states and school districts around the work that they should be doing, right? And so that type of language for me is is disconcerting because it gets back to uh, for me recognizing that. Um, that for uh, that there are policymakers who are going to be bringing in their own le- luggage of of beliefs, right? That um, that it's uh, that the federal government has has always played and is an important tool for ensuring the civil rights of individuals, um, and and that's not necessarily a the perspective that may be driving. Um, the current administration in in the Department of Education in terms of how they approach um, uh, ensuring access and opportunity for all of our kids. So just before we wrap up, because we have about one minute left, um, I wanted to ask you, what would your advice be to school leaders who are thinking, okay, this is a lot of information, so many things to take in. What steps can I start to take things forward? What steps can I start to implement in my schools, in my districts? Where can I go? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I think um, and I to, if it's right in line with it, if, I mean, this is the work that I get to do on a, um, a monthly basis because I work with a lot of school districts throughout the country. And so one of the pieces that I'm always starting with is 
you know, let's be clear defining and uh, identifying and defining the type of problem that we actually have, right? Um, and, uh, and in particular, you know, I'm, I'm a big, big proponent of, of school districts doing some level of a root cause analysis so that they clearly understand the parameters of their problem, right? Um, so it's, uh, and I'm a, you know, I'm a big pusher around, this is not what your gut tells you, but what is the set of information? What's that data that I know school districts have gotten so much better at collecting and have available to them to actually use as a drive in understanding your problem? Two, you know, there's a great deal that we know are uh, the touch points of the gaps that exist within our practice that we have to make sure that we clearly understand um, sort of uh, what is it about how of what we're doing that is playing a role in that. You know, I, I, so for example, you know, when I work with school districts, one of the things I always ask them is, you know, um, I have them look at, uh, compare their discipline uh, matrix or discipline code of conduct and compare it to their actual work that they do within their school site. Right. So I have them do this exercise where they compare the two. And and uh, and by and large, there's always a gap. Right. That's existing. There's a gap between sort of what has been outlined and then what people actually do on a daily basis, which, you know, for me, begs an understanding that um, that as much as we think that policy writing is the end all be all, it's not. It's actually we have to look we have to get into the weeds of implementation where we see the uh, the distant the disconnect between sort of what we wrote as policy and what we implement, and then also, um, you know, what people actually believe are sort of uh, what they're willing to do, right? Um, so, and, you know, so for example, you know, I've seen I've seen schools where they, you know, where they implement new strategies like um, insisting that their practitioners greet kids as they walk into the classroom as a way of beginning to change the culture and climate of their school. Uh, well, I've seen practitioners who will greet kids saying, you know, by not saying the hi, how are you, but rather saying, are you going to behave today? You know, are, um, uh, you know, are, are you going to sort of show that behavior that you showed the other day? You know, our, or, you know, I'm still upset about what you did. Um, so in those instances, we're still seeing and recognizing that, you know, there's some SEL sort of development that our practitioners are still needing to make for themselves that they're bringing into, right? It's not all practitioners, but it is that sort of small population of, of adults that kids struggle with that we know also represent a good, you know, 75% of the types of discipline referrals that are showing up. So, uh, so we have to get into the weeds of, of the implementation. So we're addressing sort of not only what people are doing to their behavior, but also how they're actually understanding and invoking that set of work. Um, and then, you know, lastly, you know, the thing that I always tell uh, school leaders is, you gotta monitor the wellness to which you're actually implementing something. Just sending people to a restorative justice training, a PBIS set of training over time, you know, uh, getting people in, in uh, understanding uh, a new SDL curriculum, um, that spray and pray type of training, right, where people spray a whole bunch of knowledge and pray that somebody does something with it, um, is not going to ensure fidelity of implementation, right? So there has to be an intention to actually paying attention to folks' implementation and monitoring, progress monitoring, so the degree to which they're actually doing. So that's what I would recommend. Well, Edward, thank you so much for joining us to the podcast. I'm going to use that spray and pray. <laughs> I had to take that one from you. <laughs> no problem. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. 
This episode was produced and edited by me, Jenny Abemu, and you can give us a grade on the quality of this podcast by rating us on iTunes or sending an email to us at feedback at edsurge.com. You can also subscribe to us on your iPhone podcast app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back next week with more on the future of education.